Hi, welcome to Harrison's Pod Class, where we discuss important concepts in internal medicine. I'm Kathy Handy. And I'm Charlie Weiner, and we're coming to you from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Welcome back to episode 67, a 42-year-old here for a routine visit. So I'll start this episode off by just pointing out the evidence for the efficacy of these annual visits that we do, but in asymptomatic adults that are unselected for risk factors or disease, um, the data is really mixed and it depends on the outcome that you want to look at. So the annual visit certainly is part of common practice, but it's difficult to demonstrate benefit. However, they do appear to lead to greater diagnosis of certain conditions such as hypertension and dyslipidemia as expected, and they also improve the delivery of recommended preventive services such as gynecologic examinations. I would also imagine they're beneficial in terms of developing trusting relationships with the healthcare system, and they've got to be, or I'd like to think they're psychologically comforting. Are there any downsides? The whole topic seems pretty benign to me. Risks of routine evaluations include inappropriate or over-testing or false positive findings that require follow-up and can induce patients to worry. But overall, they appear to be associated with less patient worry. So on balance, given the lack of convincing evidence of harm and the potential for better delivery of appropriate screening and counseling and preventive services, annual visits appear reasonable for general populations at average risk for chronic conditions. Okay, well, if you accept the value of a yearly visit, start by talking about what should be even covered. Medical history, recommended immunizations and screenings, for example, pap smears in women, and further tests may be indicated based on the patient's health and medical history. The components of the visit and exam that would be recommended for everyone are measurement of blood pressure, vision, and weight and height to monitor the body mass index or BMI. And this is really the best time for primary and primordial prevention strategies. What are those and what's the difference? Okay, so this is good to go over. So primary prevention attempts to reduce the risk of incident disease among individuals who have a risk factor. So let's go through an example. So treatment of elevated blood pressure in individuals who have not yet experienced cardiovascular disease represents one example of primary prevention. And that has proven effective in reducing the incidence of stroke, heart failure, and coronary heart disease. I've never heard of primordial prevention. What is that? So this is a more recent concept, and it focuses on prevention of the development of risk factors for disease, not just the prevention of disease. So primordial prevention strategies emphasize upstream determinants of risk for chronic diseases, such as eating patterns, physical activity, and environmental and social determinants of health. Cool. That's great. Okay, well, let's get back to this woman who is here for a routine annual visit. She's 42 years old, and she reports generally good health, particularly in the last year, and she currently is taking no medications. Her BMI is 32 kilograms per meter squared. So that places her in the obese category, so an opportunity here is to work on weight loss strategies. Good points. Let me add that further history discloses that she was previously treated for depression with sertraline, and she took that daily for 12 months, but she weaned herself off the medication and has last taken her last dose six months ago. She's feeling mentally healthy now. However, she is a smoker. She has smoked since the age of 21 and still smokes one pack of cigarettes daily. So the current smoking raises another opportunity for intervention on risk factors of disease. The addictive effects of nicotine have been well documented with effects that can last for years after successful cessation. Assessing a patient's past history of cessation attempts and current readiness for change are key first steps in forging a successful approach. 
Okay, well, that's where our question is going, so I'll give you more history. On further questioning, she tells you that she has been thinking about quitting smoking a lot lately since her father, who was a smoker, died two years ago at the age of 74 from complications of lung cancer. She has previously tried to quit, but those have been attempts on her own, and she tried both cold turkey and also using nicotine patches. She was unable to sustain her abstinence longer than one month in all of those cases. The only time she had really sustained abstinence was when she was pregnant 18 years ago, but she quickly started smoking again right after delivery. So, the question is going to ask, which of the following do you recommend for this patient? Option A is close follow-up with ongoing counseling. Option B is nicotine replacement therapy with patches or a nasal inhaler. Option C is varenicycline orally. Option D is A and B only. And option E is A, which is the counseling, combined with either B or C. So current recommendations are to offer pharmacologic treatment, usually with nicotine patches or varenicycline, to allow all who will accept it and to provide counseling and other support as part of the cessation attempt. Okay, so right away the answer is E, basically all of the above. Yeah. So smoking cessation is more likely to be successful when an individual is advised to quit by a physician and has a supervised smoking cessation plan. At every medical visit, all patients should be asked whether they smoke, if they do smoke, how much they smoke, and whether they are interested in quitting. Even patients who state they are not interested in quitting should receive a clear message from their provider that smoking is an important health hazard and they should be offered assistance with quitting in the future. For those interested in quitting, negotiating a quit date is an important step in the process and close follow-up with the office contact near the quit date being an important part of the process. You just mentioned that all the interventions are recommended. Cessation advice alone by a physician or staff is likely to increase success compared with no intervention, but a more comprehensive approach with advice, pharmacologic assistance, and counseling can increase cessation success nearly threefold. Okay, let's talk about the nicotine replacement options. The question mentioned patches and inhalers. Yeah, there are a variety of nicotine replacement products, including over-the-counter nicotine patches, gum, and lozenges as well as nicotine nasal and oral inhalers that are available by prescription. These products can be used for up to three to six months, and some products are formulated to allow a gradual step-down in dosage with increasing duration of abstinence. Nicotine replacement therapy is provided in different dosages, with higher doses being recommended for more intense smokers. And what are the options for medications? Antidepressants such as bupropion have also been shown to be effective, as has varenicycline, which was mentioned in this question, That's a partial agonist for the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, and clonidine or the tricyclic antidepressant nortriptyline should be reserved for patients who have failed on first-line pharmacologic treatment or who are unable to use other therapies. Antidepressants are more effective among smokers with a history of depression symptoms. Now, combined use of nicotine replacement therapy and antidepressants, as well as the use of gum or lozenges for acute cravings in patients using patches can increase cessation outcomes. And when should you start those? Like in this lady, should we just start it today? Pre-treatment with antidepressants or varenicycline is recommended for one to two weeks prior to the quit date. Pre-treatment with nicotine replacement products is also useful prior to a cessation date. Longer duration of nicotine replacement as a maintenance therapy for those who are unsuccessful in quitting with a shorter duration of use is also a strategy. What about e-cigarettes? We're certainly hearing a lot about those these days. 
For adult addicted smokers, switching to exclusive use of e-cigarettes but not dual use with combustible cigarettes may have a role in promoting cessation, particularly for those unlikely to quit with other proven cessation modalities. However, it's not yet clear whether e-cigarette use results in higher cessation outcomes than other pharmacologic approaches in the context of physician-based smoking interventions. And certainly ongoing studies are looking at those questions. What about the outcomes of smoking cessation as we've discussed? Unfortunately, we need to do a lot better. Approximately 70 to 80% of smokers would like to quit smoking. More than one half of current smokers attempted to quit in the last year, but the majority did so without an appropriate cessation regimen like I described previously. Sadly, overall only 6% quit for about six months and only 3% remain abstinent for two years. Okay, so the teaching point here is that we have a lot of work to do to reduce the detrimental health effects of smoking and to promote smoking cessation. When seeing a smoker, the physician should maintain a positive message about quitting smoking, and when the patient is ready, the most effective approach to smoking cessation is a combination of counseling, nicotine replacement, and pharmacotherapy. And to read more about this topic, you can refer to Harrison's chapter on nicotine addiction. This is Jim Shanahan, publisher at McGraw-Hill. Harrison's Podclass is brought to you by McGraw-Hill's Access Medicine, the online medical resource that delivers the latest trusted content from the best minds in medicine. Go to accessmedicine.com to learn more.